join me in prayer as we begin this morning and turn to God's word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Uh, as we begin this morning, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of Scripture as you're able. We continue in our fall series called Heresies Old and Ever New, where we look at wrong belief that has historically permeated and continues to permeate the life of the church. And, and part of the thesis here is that right belief matters, because without right belief, we are missing out on the good news of Jesus. We talked last week about Christological heresies. You can Go back and listen to, to that uh, wrong belief regarding the nature of Jesus, who he is, human and divine. And this Sunday, we're going to look at a heresy known as antinomianism. antinomianism. But first, uh, let's receive the gift of hearing from Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. This text highlights for us that, the, that those who followed Jesus during his earthly ministry had a lot of questions about him. But a couple of the most burning questions as they heard him speak and teach were, is Jesus teaching some sort of, right, some sort of new way to become right with God and enter heaven? Is this a new teaching? Another one is, is he getting rid of the law of, of Moses and what the prophets taught? Is there something new happening here that that negates what has come before him. Christ discerns their questions and he answers them. This is why he begins with, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That phrase, the law or the prophets, was a common idiom used at the time to refer to what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew text, the law and the prophets. So Jesus here is correcting their thinking about his views on the Old Testament. There were two dominant views at the time of Jesus on the Old Testament. For those who, who followed Jesus, who were part of his ministry. There were those like the Pharisees who strayed into what we would call legalism. Legalism. That strict adherence to each clause of the law of Moses would ultimately become a source of salvation for them. In legalism, as many of you know, behavior and, and moral living become the most important thing. Behavior modification. And it's the only way 
in which we can be made right before God. So that's one side. And then on the other side, there were those who listened to the words of Jesus and interpreted his words to mean that the law just wasn't important anymore. That his teaching had made it so that the law wasn't even really material to the life of faith at all. And Jesus responds with great clarity to both of these groups saying, you're both wrong. You're both wrong. He did not come to abolish the law. In fact, not one stroke of any letter will pass away under his authority. The actual text there says, and and you may know this from the King James, not a jot or tittle will pass away. If you've heard that before, jot is is another way of of saying the Hebrew letter yod, which is just an apostrophe. It's the tiniest uh, character of of, of the Hebrew text. Or a, a, a tittle. A tittle is a ligature of any kind. It's the difference between a capital E and a capital F, right? One little line. The law is vitally important to Jesus and his followers. But in saying that, he also says the legalists are wrong too. That the righteousness that they seek through law adherence is not going to be sufficient for salvation. We can't enter the kingdom by the way of free license and we can't enter the kingdom by the way of legalism. Neither of them work. We're going to talk more about the Old Testament in this sermon series when we talk about the heresy of Marcionism in a couple weeks. But for today, I'm going to talk about the grandchild of Marcionism known as antinomianism. Antinomianism, which this literally means against the law, antinomos, antinomos, against the law. And as far as we can tell, the the phrase in, in terms of a group of people was coined by Martin Luther in the 16th century. Luther is best known for preaching salvation in Jesus is by grace alone and through faith alone by grace alone and through faith alone those were the two foundational truths that that luther proclaimed but one of his colleagues johann agricola took those further he said if legalism is really the problem here and grace is the solution then wouldn't it make sense to stop preaching about things like the ten commandments in the old testament Those were Old Testament laws. They were wiped out by the grace of Jesus, by his sacrifice, weren't they? If we now know the forgiveness of Jesus, then sin really isn't a problem anymore. And Luther came down really hard on this teaching of antinomianism in a book called Against the Antinomians, where he specifically calls out this heresy. And and I want to unpack why antinomianism is a problem and how it's still very operative in Christian and secular thought today. Now, some of you might be asking, but wait a second. If Jesus denounces both antinomianism and legalism in the Sermon on the Mount, why aren't you talking about legalism? Why aren't you noting that as a heresy? And we probably all know legalists in our lives. We can easily tell you why legalism is a problem. And legalism, in many ways, is heretical. But the reason that we're not talking about legalism from this text is that I almost never, ever come across people who are tempted to become more morally legalistic than they already are. Who are dead set on earning their salvation by trying to be extremely obedient and trying to follow laws and live moral and upright lives. I'm sorry to say that doesn't happen very much. I'm sure those people are out there, but they are few and far between. However, I meet many, many people who are tempted by antinomianism. Or living in such a way that I would look at their lives and go, they're functionally antinomians. It's incredibly pervasive. Where does antinomianism show up 
today. I see it in people who, who misunderstand and downplay sin. That's a very common occurrence. If you hear things like, oh, it's okay, it didn't really hurt anybody, so it's not a big deal. Or I'll, I'll ask forgiveness for that later. Or I, I know that that was wrong, but that's just kind of who I am. It's just kind of like my personality. Those are indicators of antinomianism at work. I also see it in people who misunderstand and over-elevate the grace of Jesus Christ with an attitude of not having to worry, be worried about or concerned about sin or brokenness because there's a covering of grace on their lives. I see this all the time, and according to Jesus, this is also a misunderstanding of the gospel. So let me give you a case study. And this is a, this is a true story as I remember it. Years ago, uh, I was taking part in some meetings up at North Park on the north side of the city in winter, and I was driving down some of those side streets. Some of you know these side streets very well. You know what I'm talking about, these narrow passageways, one-way streets with cars parked along both sides. And because it was winter in Chicago, and the city of Chicago refuses to plow side streets for some reason, there were those deep rivulets of of snow and and ice that sort of make like a track on that side street that you kind of can't move off of, right, and navigate very very easily. It was a total mess. And on top of that, I was driving a 15-passenger church van, uh, which was a little hard to navigate. uh, And and halfway down the block, um, I, I took off a side mirror on a parked car. Okay, first question. What do I believe about sin? That's the first question we have to ask today. What do we believe about sin? I had to ask myself that question in this moment. I got out of the van. I picked up the broken mirror. I placed it on the hood of the car. I looked around. There was nobody around. I mean, nobody. It was cold. This was before ring cameras, so I wasn't thinking about anyone having seen what I had done or taking videos of of, of the license plate number. I could have easily driven away. I'm, I'm not a little ashamed to tell you that, that I for sure thought about driving away in that moment. I don't remember exactly what I was thinking, but knowing myself, I was probably thinking something like, it's not that big a deal. That car wasn't very close to the curb anyways. They were kind of parked a little ways out. And it wasn't totally my... If the city of Chicago had just plowed the side streets, that never would have happened because it was... All of those rationalizations indicate a lax attitude towards sin, right? And I think many of us do that all the time. Uh, But I want to say this is not a biblical view of sin. It's not a biblical view of sin. In the Bible, sin is actually a serious issue. It's a transgression of God's law. It's a rebellion against him. When we sin, we damage our relationship with God and the world around us. The Bible describes sin as leading to death. It's the chief human malady that we all share in common, and it's a malady that we are helpless to heal on our own. The Bible also describes sin as injurious to our own souls, having adverse effects on our bodies and on our minds. Now, antinomianism rightly looks at Jesus' sacrifice and and elevates that so that we can be free from the eternal burden of sin And it celebrates that, which it should. This is an amazing thing that Jesus accomplishes. But the antinomian will say that because of that sacrifice, sin doesn't have any power anymore. It's not material for the life of someone who believes in Jesus. This could not be any more false, my friends. Receiving Jesus' forgiveness frees us from the burden of death that comes from sin. 
But we are not freed from sin itself, are we? We still struggle with sin. And we struggle with the consequences of sin. To say otherwise is either overly optimistic or downright naive, and we should steer, steer clear of that way of thinking. So what did I do on that icy, snowy street? I decided I was going to drive away. Uh, I didn't have any way of knowing whose car it was. I didn't have any paper so that I could write a note. And I had to hurry up because there was a car behind me that couldn't get past. It was trying to get by me. And, and I was basically thinking to myself, I, I think what I was thinking is, I know this is a sin. I know it's the wrong thing to do. But, like, God's going to have to forgive me because what else can I do here? What can I do? I don't know what to do. So, so I signaled one second to the car behind me, and I got out to make sure that the mirror was was safely on the hood of the car, and I heard someone say, hey, that's my car. And so I went and I parked at the end of the street, let the car go by me. I walked back to go and meet this man. It was a Hispanic man. His name was Jose. And I went into this grand apology. Had no idea how mad he would be or whatever, so I went into this grand apology that it was icy, and, and, and I wasn't driving too fast, but, but I lost a little bit of control because, you know, they don't, they don't plow the streets, and it wasn't totally my fault, but, but I understand it was my fault, and I'd be happy to trade insurance info, or, or if he wanted to go get a quote, I'd be happy to pay him directly for the damages and make sure that everything was right. And he said something that I never expected. He said, no, nah, man, don't worry about it. We're good. And I refused. No, I couldn't possibly accept that. I wouldn't be even comfortable with that, right? And then he explained to me that earlier... In that year, he had sideswiped the car as he was parallel parking on his street. He had left a big dent in the door of a car. He had left a note on that car, but he had never heard from them. And since it had been several months and he never saw that car parked on his street again, he assumed that they were not going to call him about what he had done. He felt really bad about it. He had lost sleep over it. And so now things had come full circle for him, and he would simply fix the side mirror on his own and consider the matter settled. He ended by saying, so thank you, man. Now I can sleep at night. Now I feel, I feel easier about what I did. <laughs> I was shocked. I was relieved. I was humbled. And that forever will be an example of grace. Of grace. And grace is absolutely central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus offers us grace. Now, grace is not getting off the hook when we deserve something worse. It is not ducking of consequences. Grace is a gift that is given that is wildly unfair. My favorite definition of grace is getting what we don't deserve. And if you don't know the grace of Jesus, then you really don't know Jesus because he is full of grace and he himself is embodied grace. Jose on that day offered me grace. I deserved to be a few hundred dollars lighter. I deserved to have somebody be mad at me on that street and say, what is wrong with you? I deserved to have to go through all the steps with insurance or whatever to go and make things right. But he gave me what I didn't deserve. He gave me grace. Now, antinomians, to their credit, celebrate grace given to us through Jesus Christ. It's a very important part about how they understand the good news of Jesus. But they fail miserably in their response to grace? And that's the second question. How do I respond to grace? 
What do I believe about sin, and how do I respond to grace? How do you respond to the grace of Jesus in your life? I would hope that most of us respond to grace with gratitude, with thanksgiving, that it would lead us to, to awe and worship of who Jesus is. But it also has to lead us into right living. It's never going to work to say, as the antinomians do, wow, that grace is remarkable, it's amazing, I'm, I'm living in it, I'm resting in it, and then go about living our life totally unchanged, living our life normally. Grace should change us. It should motivate us towards righteousness, towards holy living. It should motivate us to flee from sin and to live more holy lives, not less holy lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his seminally crucial 1937 book, The Cost of Discipleship, which I quote over and over and over again in these sermons, you know this about me. He called antinomian thinking cheap grace. Cheap grace. It is defined as, quote, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, end quote. And cheap grace is abundant in our culture. Mark Sayers says that we have a culture that wants all the byproducts of the Christian life without Christ himself. That we want the benefits of the kingdom of God without the king. Our response to grace should instead be to cherish it and to honor it and to never, ever cheapen that grace. I was moved by Jose's grace towards me, so much so that later that month I, was, I had a chance to test that grace in my response to it. I was sitting in my own car in the Jewel parking lot on 55th Street. I was on my phone on a phone call with a parishioner when I heard a crunch. A woman had parked next to me. She had opened her door. It was a windy day, and it had slammed into my car door and I it had left a noticeable dent on the passenger side door. She came out of the car and began to apologize and, and to blame the wind. It's not my fault, it's the wind. Um, and I could tell that she was a little frantic and I, and I said to her, hey, hey, don't worry, we're good. We're good. And I proceeded to tell her about my accident and how Jose had taught me about the grace of, of God and, and I, that I really couldn't say I had learned anything about that if I didn't extend the same grace to her. And she cried and she hugged me and that was a cool moment. How do you respond to grace? If you have a proper view of Jesus and the law that he upholds and fulfills, then you would never ever see grace as a license to sin. Grace is motivation to flee from sin, to do right, to strive for righteousness. Jesus did not abolish the law. He fulfilled the law in his very body, through his sacrifice, through his embodiment of grace. So antinomianism may have been officially banned as a heresy 500 years ago with, with Martin Luther, but it is much, much older than that. The Apostle Paul actually dealt with antinomian thinking in the church in Rome. Listen to how he addresses this thinking in Romans chapter 6. Does this sound like what we're talking about? What then are we to say should we continue in sin in order that grace may increase? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we might also walk in newness of life. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey those desires. No longer present members your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Paul is addressing antinomianism in Rome. This is a heresy that believers have always been susceptible to. But I don't think Paul does this to cudgel people I don't think he even does it to scare people into right belief, and certainly that's not why we're preaching on this either. I think he does so because he cares about the faith of these Roman believers. He cares about their relationship with God. I had a revelation this week. I, I was, I, it was brought to my attention this week, the text, Matthew 24, the words of Jesus, where he talks about signs of the end times with everything going on in the world and, and the weight that, that I and so many of, of you are feeling. Um, these are important words for us to reflect on. And in Matthew 24, he speaks of wars and rumors of wars. Does that seem slightly relevant right now in the world that we're in today? But then in verse 12, he says something that blew me away. He says, there's going to be an increase in lawlessness. And because of this, the love of many will grow cold. I used to always read lawlessness here as like godlessness or hedonism. But the Greek word is anomion. Anomia. Antinomian. It's literally the word. Luther might have coined the phrase antinomians, but it's literally right there on the tongue of Jesus. Antinomianism is going to increase. And that increase is going to be of, of people who don't regard the law, who don't live like there's any law, who, who, who would live in cheap grace rather than the grace of God. And then Jesus says, what's the result of that lawlessness? What's the, what's the result of that antinomianism in the estimation of Jesus Christ himself? He says, the love of many will grow cold. Do we see that around us, my friends? Love for God growing cold? Love for others growing cold. Friends, the lesson for us today is to not fall into the trap that antinomianism sets for us. Going back to Jesus' words, he says that there are two twisted views of the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew law. That you can take seriously sin but not understand grace like the Pharisees of Jesus' day or the legalists of our day. And you can understand grace, but cheapen that grace by not taking sin seriously, like the antinomians in Rome or in Luther's Germany or throughout church history. Or we can cherish the good news of Jesus by understanding the realities of grace and taking sin seriously so as not to cheapen it. So let's get clear on what we believe about sin and then choose how we're going to respond to grace so that our love does not grow cold for the sake of ourselves and for the sake of the world that God has given to us. This, my friends, is the way of Jesus. 
And it should be the way of all of us who desire to follow him. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand again as you're able. As a response in this sermon series, we're going to be responding with the words of the Apostles' Creed. As a sign of the unity of our faith, I'll remind you that the Apostles' Creed is so important to us, even as a non-creedal church, because this is a creed that is shared today by all major branches of Christianity. And we agree this to be the truth together. So let's say this together as a sign of our shared faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Would you remain standing, please, for our closing hymn, hymn number 525, Wonderful Words of Life. Let's sing of the grace of Jesus. Thank you.